in his book, uh, The Color of Compromise, Jamar Tisby, referencing this passage in Ephesians, he writes this. He says, Christ himself brought down, brought down the dividing wall of hostility that separated humanity from one another and from God. Indeed, reconciliation across racial and ethnic lines is not something Christians must achieve, but a reality we must receive. Cross-cultural ministry, racial reconciliation, racial solidarity, or whatever other term or phrase we want to use to describe the work of the church in bridging racial ethnic lines um, that divides it is first and foremost gospel ministry. It's gospel ministry because it rests in the same grace of God that brought about our reconciliation with him, the grace that manifested itself in God giving up his son for us. Paul says as much in these verses when he writes, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so I believe Uh, Brother Tisby is right when speaking to our reconciliation across racial ethnic lines. It's not our achievement of this reality that is on display, but it is the work of God's grace in the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. The real work, if we can call it that, is the work of receiving what God in Christ has already done. It's believing what God has done and creating now in himself a new reconciled humanity in his son and then doing those works that are consistent with that belief. Our failures, if we can embrace them historically to live as a reconciled community, is the story of a people who have actually failed to receive through faith the truth of what Christ has already accomplished through his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. It's a failure to discard our old ways of viewing ourselves, our old ways of viewing each other, our old ways of relating to each other based on those views. Pay attention uh, to Paul's word uh, here as he speaks to Christ creating in himself a new humanity, a new humanity. And if it is new, then it presupposes that something has been done with the old humanity that preceded it. Paul in another place tells us what has been done with that old humanity. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, this morning uh, here at Puritan, uh, that if we are to be a city set on a hill, if we are to be salt and light in the earth, if we are to be indeed the light of the world, as Jesus has uh, called us uh, to be, All expressions of Jesus regarding the identity of the church as a whole, then we must be a church that is faithfully discarding the old and divided ways of the old humanity and receiving by faith the new and reconciled ways of the new humanity that Christ has made us through his death, his resurrection, 
his ascension. It is, uh, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is our call to give expression to this new humanity and the way we live our lives in this world. Amen, people of God. And so as we look at this, look at this text this morning, I just want to encourage you that if our reconciliation to God is certain because of the work of Jesus, then so is our unity. But if we are to experience that unity more and more in our generation, then we must receive it. We must receive it by faith, a faith that manifests itself in action. And Paul in these verses lays out for us truths that we must receive about this new humanity that we have been created for if we are to be God's witnesses uh, to uh, our generation. So what are those truths that we are called to receive regarding the new humanity that Christ has created for us? Well, first and foremost, uh, Paul lays out for us in this text that the far are now near. The far, the far are now near. Uh, Paul begins by calling his audience to remember uh, to remember uh, the space that they once occupied before Christ. Uh, and he begins by reminding them uh, of a space they were in, not because of their own making, but because of other people. Indeed, his own people's view of them. He says, uh, he says, remember, 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 remember that you, you, who were far, you who were called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that you were far away. You see, the Jewish people at that time saw the marker of circumcision, the marker in the flesh, as a basis of the distinction between themselves and non-Jews. More than this, they saw it as a marker of the superior distance between themselves and non-Jews. Yet this marker in their flesh, it was not a sign of superiority. Rather, it was a gracious sign and seal of the covenant relationship that God had entered into with them, a relationship that also included a calling, a calling actually to draw the nations near to him. Yes, the nations uh, th that were one time far, far away, they were called as a people to draw near to God. Yes, the nations were at one time far away, but according to Paul, only in terms of their spiritual condition. They were far away in their knowledge of Christ, far away from membership in the kingdom of God, far away from the promises that God had made in his covenant with Israel, and far away uh, from the future hope that comes in relationship with God. Yet they were not far away because they were Roman. They were not far away because they were Greek, not far away because they were Ethiopian, not far away because they were Asian, not far away because they were from an, another nation on the earth. The marker in the flesh of Jewish males, it was not a symbol of superiority. It was a sign and seal of a relationship and a calling, a calling to bring near to God those nations that had been far away from him. But now in Christ, what they had failed to do, God had accomplished. God's, God's son a Jew, according to his flesh, sacrificed himself in that flesh by dying on a cross in order to bring near those whose flesh did not look like his. Those whose flesh did not bear the same markers as his. Jesus, the son of God, did not look at the flesh of those from among the other nations and shrink back. No, he looked at their spiritual condition and he drew near. 
He looked at those whose flesh was in, he was in part responsible for creating, whose flesh he had along with the Father and Spirit endowed with the privilege to bear the image of God, that image which was now defaced by sin and the, and the coming wages of that sin, which is death. And he, together with the Father and the Spirit, determined that he would not allow that distance, the distance created by sin and death, to prevail. And so he took that human flesh the flesh that some among his people had determined was superior to others because of the marker of circumcision. And he sacrificed himself in that flesh on the cross to bring those who were far away near. You know, you want to know what it means to be, to receive by faith membership in the new humanity that Christ has created for us. It means looking at other image bearers, not as inferior but as equal image bearers who Christ longs to draw near, who he longs to redeem. If any Christian, if any Christian thinks their flesh is superior to another's and that person is deceiving themselves and they're not acting like a member of the new creation, the new humanity that God has made us in Christ, they are acting like one who is far away rather than one who has been brought near. And so brothers and sisters to be the church in our generation means to be a people who in our speaking and living or giving expression to the truth that in Christ there is now a new humanity where the far are now brought near. And so what do you see when you look at me? And what do I see when I look at you? The myth of colorblindness in some circles of the church won't allow us to be honest with ourselves about how some of us view each other in the church doesn't allow us to be honest about the content of our conversations or the jokes we tell when we are sitting around our dinner tables and no one from the other people group that we think is far away or inferior is present. doesn't allow us to be honest about the biases that really do shape the view uh, that we sometimes have of others. doesn't allow us to be honest about the negative associations we attach sometimes to people's skin color, physical features. In short, if we are honest with ourselves about the impact of continuing to see each other, even and maybe especially in the church, as far away. And perhaps that's because we continue to fail to grasp how far away spiritually we really were from God, who gave the blood of his son to redeem us. No wonder Paul's application point in these first verses is not the one we might choose. He says, he says to the far away, which by the way is all of us, he says, remember. Remember. Before you go do any other work, do the work of remembering. Do the work of remembering how far away you were in your humanity from the God who gifted you with that humanity. Remember that your flesh was in the same condition as all flesh, separated from God and headed toward death until the God man gave up his life to redeem yours from the pit. Your humanity isn't better than another's. Your humanity was just as precious in the sight of God as the rest of mankind. For God so loved the world, not just you. So when you look at another image bearer and think far, far, remember 
that that far was once you. That far was once you. The far now near the wall is now a clear path. Paul speaks to a wall of hostility that stood in the way of the new humanity that God sought to bring into being. The new humanity alluded to in the prophecy about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 49. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that there was a there was a wall preventing this new humanity from coming into fruition. And he tells us uh, what this metaphorical wall of hostility consisted of. He says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances and commentators have have debated what Paul uh, means here when he talks about uh, this law uh, uh, of commandments expressed in ordinances. Is he speaking about the, uh, the whole law of God? Is he speaking about, about portions of it, like its ceremonial aspects, aspects related uh, to Israel's worship, or, or, or its civil aspects, aspects related to the government of God's people? Or is he speaking to the traditions and rules that were built up around the law that were designed to keep people from breaking the law? I think the word hostility here helps us in understanding what Paul uh, was referring to in this verse. Something, something about the law created hostility between the Jews and the nations. Something about the law made, made relationships in the day-to-day difficult and, and, and trying. And I believe the answer can be found in something Luke tells us in Acts, uh, in Acts when, when the church was wrestling with the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church and discussing it at a a meeting in Jerusalem. He writes in in Acts 15, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and and required to keep the law of Moses. Remember that that what sparked this meeting was was the activity in Antioch in which Jews and non-Jews were openly fellowshipping with each other, eating together without fear of judgment, of each other. Yet, yet, yet there were those who were committed to maintaining the social norms of, of segregated life, even in the church, who were applying God's laws in ways that promoted uh, uh, either the assimilation of non-Jews fully into Jewish culture or the maintenance of separation between the two groups socially. In other words, if, if you want to fellowship with us, then you have to become you have to become like us. You have to become one of us. Otherwise, you, you, you can't, I'm going to use a phrase from, 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 my, from, from, my, from, my, from my own upbringing, you can't rock with us. Follow our rules, follow our traditions, follow the ordinances we have deemed as the most central ones respected to God's law, and we'll be good. So, so it wasn't the law as a mirror reflecting our sin or a restraint against evil or a revelation of what is pleasing to God that creates the hostility, but, but the law as an enforcement of the segregationist practices that created the hostility. It was the law applied as a means of keeping the two separated from each other. Just look at the text in front of you. Paul says, for he himself is our peace who has, who has made us both one. And he goes on to say that the purpose in abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances was so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The cross, the cross of Christ is the end of a segregated church. 
And it's the end of rules and regulations that promote it. Rules and regulations that encourage segregation and that seek to use God's law to promote it are put to death in Christ. You know what I long for, if I can be honest with you this morning? I long for the day when we no longer talk about the white church or the black church or the whatever ethnic church. I long for the day when we just talk about the church as the reconciled community of God's people. Because when people walk through the doors of our church, they see that. The call here is to look at those practices, beliefs, and customs, and rules, and the like that shape our life together. It's to ask ourselves, are we doing things in the church that promote the very hostility that Christ came to destroy? In Paul's day, you know, social relationships in the church were being drawn along the lines of fidelity, right, to Jewish cultural customs, whether or not one was circumcised and followed the traditions built up around the law became the determining factor in people's relationships, even down to whether you could eat with someone across the table. In our day, in our, in our day and perhaps in our particular part of the church, it is our sociopolitical worldviews that is the line of demarcate, demarcation that determines whether or not we can live as brothers and sisters in the church. Who you voted for appears to carry more weight in the church in terms of relationship than our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in a space now where we're listening to one another to hear phrases or ideas that we think identifies a person as in the camp that we're opposed to so that we can then designate them as being far. Of course, once that person becomes the other, then we no longer in our minds need to deal with them, no longer need to interact with them, no longer need to work with them, no longer need to love them, no longer need to eat with them. We haven't even gotten to other beliefs and practices and customs or rules that are shaping our lives together, that are part of the wall of hostility that Christ tore down in his flesh. And so the call really is to examine ourselves individually and to examine ourselves corporately and to ask what is really shaping how we treat the other. Is it fidelity to the love of Christ or fidelity to the wall of rules and practices and beliefs and customs and the like that shape my view of the world? The far are now near. The wall has become a clear path and the strangers are now our household. The strangers are now a household. Paul says as much in verses 18 to 22, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This last picture of what it means to receive the new humanity that we have been created for in Christ, it speaks to, it speaks to access. It speaks to the equal access we have to God through Christ and, and by the Spirit. And it's an access that speaks to the dignity that every one of us have now in the church as sons and daughters of God, that, that God as Father speaks to our place as children. And this access is also an access that speaks to God's delight his delight in dwelling among us, in making his home with us. But watch this, watch this. 
It is a delight in making his home, not, not among a segregated people, but among a people that he has now reconciled through the work of his son. Pay attention to the text. The church grows into a holy temple, a place for God to dwell, not separated from each other, but, but through being joined together. This, 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 this new humanity of Jew and Gentile that's now been joined together in Christ. That is the place where God dwells. The fact that this comes by the spirit is not to indicate that this equal access to God is simply a spiritual one with no physical real world application. No, this equal access should manifest itself in how we practice membership within the household of God. It should be borne out along the lines of what Paul says in another place when he speaks to membership in the body. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. And, you know, he goes on to talk about, you know, if uh, if the eyes should say... <laughs> If the foot should say that I'm not a member of the body, Paul says, for that reason, it does not cease to belong. The eye cannot say to the hand, verse 21, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. Do we have the same care for one another in the church? Do we really treat one another as equals in the body? Do we give greater dignity to those in the body who are in a weaker position? These are questions that we must face together if we're going to, if we're going to see in our generation the church be what God has actually called it to be. In God's household, everyone has access to him. Do they? Do they in our local expressions of his household? The call here is to understand that every single person in here who has their faith in Jesus has been gifted by God to be a part of the body. Every single Christian in here is a building block to the church becoming that holy temple in the Lord that Paul speaks of here in this text. And pay attention to the context again because we are building blocks within our ethnic and cultural identities. Being brought near doesn't imply assimilation. It doesn't mean that all the bricks that are being used are the same kind. Different bricks. God's house is not homogenous. It's heterogeneous. The unity of the church is not a unity created by making everyone the same. Rather, it's a unity created by the love of God in Jesus, holding together through faith in him all the dissimilar parts of the body. That's what makes the church special. <laughs> It's not an affinity group. It's a group of people who have their faith in Jesus from all different aspects and walks of life and ethnicities. What this means for us practically is that we have to lay aside our obsession with worldly notions of comfort. The church was not created for our worldly comfort, but to build you up, to build us up in faith in Christ. The church wasn't created so we can sing all the songs we like to sing and worship. <laughs> It wasn't created so we can promote all the causes that we care passionately about. It wasn't created so we could continue all the social networks that, that we love. It wasn't created so we could uphold all the social political agendas that matter to us. No, the church was created to be a holy temple to the Lord. 
It was created to be a place where God himself would dwell, a place where people from all, all the nations of the earth can encounter the true and living God. And the presence of God, the presence of God is obscured when we don't give ourselves to being what he's called us to be across all these lines of division. So pay attention to my words, for I said that the presence of God is obscured. I didn't say it was absent. <laughs> you know, the wonderful thing about God is he keeps dwelling with us and keeps working in us and among us until he makes us what he has come to make us together as his people. So even though I may be frustrated at times with the church, I don't throw my hands up and walk away because the church is God's bride and his body through which he has come to proclaim his gospel to the world. Amen, people of God. Pay attention to the text. For Paul says we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. And that together is a diverse together, not an assimilated together. And so I'll close with this. The church in Jesus is a display of the new humanity. It's not a new humanity that we achieve, but that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. Yet that reception by faith looks like something and calls us to activity in keeping with that look. In this new humanity, the far have been drawn near. We are no longer to view each other from that superior, inferior dynamic of the old humanity. In this new humanity, the wall of hostility becomes a, a clear path. We are no longer, we don't, we no longer establish rules, regulations, practices that promote segregation. In this new humanity, in this new humanity, strangers become a household. <laughs> We become a place where family members enjoy equal access to the father, the father who makes his home among his reconciled people. I'll leave you with the image of Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold, a multitude which no man could number from every tribe, nation, people, and language. They stood before the lamb. What did they sing? A new song. Salvation belongs. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Amen, people of God. Let me pray for you. <laughs> Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. We give you thanks. We thank you for what you have, what you have done in Christ Jesus. Through the cross of Christ, we have been reconciled to God. Our sin, our sin has been dealt with. And death has been crushed to death. So the day is coming where we will enjoy a world that is free from unrighteousness and sin. We give you praise for that. But we also praise you that through the cross of Christ, we have been reconciled to each other. Those who are far have brought near. The wall of hostility has been broken down. We are now in Christ being built together into a household for God to dwell. Father, I pray that this would be reflected here on this campus. I pray, Lord God, uh, that as, uh, as, as, as these students study your word and as they prepare to preach and minister your word, Lord, in this world, I pray that you would deepen in them this call to be a people who are proclaiming the good news of the gospel that reconciles men and women and children to God, but also reconciles them to each other. 
So I pray, teach us how to walk in this reconciliation. Teach us how to long for it, pray for it, and pursue it in our lives. And Father, we'll be careful to give your name the glory and the praise, not ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.